0: Welcome to the Learner Space Conversations. This is a podcast about change in education. In education, and maybe this is different to most other orders of activity, we know better than what we're actually doing. Despite what we can see as almost universal consensus to, that we need to change, and that we need to change right away, Most schools are still stuck to their old ways and to many ageless pedagogical practices that even though they are still prevalent, are hopelessly outdated. We are, once more, hosting a space for classroom teachers, educators in general, authors, speakers, and why not also for dreamers who are working for change in education. We want to listen to the voices of those who have a different perspective, those whose thoughts, words, and above all, whose actions inspire us to change. And today we have a very special guest. Dr. Indre Viscontas is a professor at the University of San Francisco and she holds a PhD in Cognitive Neuroscience. She is also an opera singer, an opera director, neuroscientist, creativity expert, science communicator, TV host, and podcaster. Indra is also a lecturer at The Great Courses. I would emphatically recommend her latest course on the effects of technology on the brain. And her other courses deal with brain myths and creativity. We thought it would be wonderful to have Indra today here with us. And ask her about the frontier of neuroscience, creativity, technology, and how that may impact our schools. Welcome, Indra. How are you?
1: Oh, I'm, I'm really well. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Our pleasure. And we, we very much look forward to your, your presentation and your, your appearance at our ESAP conference in, in September.
1: Yeah, my flights are booked. <laughs> <laughs> Good.
0: Um, tell us about your unique journey or your very particular journey, especially how you've managed to kind of marry very different fields in in your life and your vocation.
1: Sure. So I grew up in Canada, uh, the child of immigrants from Lithuania. So until I was seven, I didn't speak any English, even though I was in an English speaking country, um, because my family thought it was really important to preserve the Lithuanian culture and heritage. Because at the time, of course, uh, Lithuania was occupied by the Soviet Union, and one of the things that they did is they got rid of the language. They they refused to teach the Lithuanian language in the schools there. So my my parents thought it was really important that we kind of preserve that. So a lot of my. Early education really centered around this kind of dual existence of I went to school and I learned the things I needed to learn um, in the, you know, in, in I, I actually ended up doing French immersion so I it was in English and French in, in Toronto. Um, But most of my, I would say, education happened outside of school and the kind of extracurricular things that we did, like Lithuanian folk dancing and scouting. And I went to Lithuanian classes on Saturday mornings. And, you know, there are so many other ways in which um, I sort of had this cultural education. So in a way, I I really felt like an outsider in the schools, because for a lot of my peers, that kind of heavy cultural education didn't exist. Um, So my parents, you know, ensured that I was always learning a musical instrument, that I, you know, went to ballet school and all of this kind of thing. Um, And I I think that in my head, I thought this was just how every kid grows up, Um, but I you know it was it was very different and I and I'm I'm sort of prefacing that because it really affects sort of now the kind of work that I do. Um, so then when it was time for me to choose a major in college, uh, I you know always got really good grades because that's really important to you know immigrant parents in particular. Um, you know first you have to get an education and make sure that you have the credentials in the country in which you're living so that you know you can have a job and and uh, and make a living. So the idea of doing an artistic or a creative profession was not something that my family supported. Um, They wanted me to be a doctor or an engineer or, you know, some kind of serious professional. And I was so I, I did well in science in high school. And around the same time, I also was really kind of just finding my passion for opera and especially for performance. And, um, but I didn't see how I could, you know, do what my, my family wanted me to do and, you know, achieve what I needed to achieve, uh, as a scientist or, or a doctor or whatever, and still do a degree in music. So I chose, um, psychology and I was pre-med in undergrad. And then as I got further along the way, I realized that if I did go to medical school, My time would be so tied up with all of these responsibilities. I watched my brother go through this, who's an orthopedic surgeon, and he had zero time in his 20s to do anything other than medicine. And that was not okay with me. I did not feel like I could leave my musical passions to being something that I did at the end of a long day of being in the hospital. So I tried to think of how I could still get the credentials that I needed, still open up a lot of opportunities, but have the time available in order to have these other pursuits. And that's when I came upon a PhD in psychology. In my mind, I thought getting a PhD was a little bit like being an undergrad where, you know, you had lots of free time. You went to a couple of classes and then you had free time to do whatever you wanted and in the phd program well you only need to take classes for the first two years the rest of the time you know you were just working on your projects um, of course that was naive uh, getting a phd was much more difficult than my undergraduate degree but in that journey i kind of started to realize that the way that my mind works the way that my motivation works is really project-based that I'm happy to immerse myself in a project, but I don't wanna do the same thing for 40, 50 years as a kind of career. I I kind of, that I find nerve wracking. Like, you know, my heart starts to race if I think that, okay, you're gonna be doing this same thing for 40 years. So I saw the PhD as a five-year project and then after that, I said, well, now that I've got the doctorate, I mean, it's not a medical degree, but it still says doctor at the beginning of my name. Uh, my family is happy. I could, you know, find a job and now I can pursue my passions. And that's really when I, you know, pivoted and full time went to music school and, you know, for, for the next um, several years worked as an artist. And I, th- I think that one of the reasons why um, why I think that I was able to do that at the time um, was that it wasn't really clear in in terms of sort of what what the opportunities were with a PhD. Um, so it it's not like like now I feel like that's a little bit narrower in some ways. Um, but at the time it still felt like, well, people with PhDs do lots of different things. Um, and, and now, now coming now, it's like, again, that same way too, with a, a lot of people leaving academia and going into industry. But anyway, that's a long story. Um, no, so that's it, essentially yeah, <laughs> I, I, I,
0: I, I can't help but asking you a couple of questions related to your story. Um, now you're you're pretty unique in in your field of expertise and you know I've listened to your courses I've read some of your stuff and and you know fascinating stuff and it's so unique and and so um interesting for for many of us because it is at the intersection of fields that are uh, of of general interest and and your own passion for music um I think can resonate with many of our our listeners and many of our listeners students who are now trying to find their way through school um do you think that in retrospect, this this forcing you to do a respectable career at the end of the day paid off? And related to that, what would have happened if you had been in a school system where a school had actually helped you follow your passion wholeheartedly?
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't know the answer to that second part of that question, um, because I feel like, you know, there are there are really great music schools there are really great arts schools, but they don't serve every student. And I see a lot of students at the San Francisco Conservatory of Music where I have an appointment who um, who are feeling just as much pressure to succeed as musicians as people in medical school feel to succeed as physicians and they're just as stressed out about it. It becomes no longer just the pursuit of some higher passion. It becomes about how do I get, how do I make money doing this thing that I'm good at? Um, So I think that 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 problem is true in any field. I think that I am lucky that it happened the way it did for me. And I don't think I could be where I am today if I hadn't done the PhD first. Um, Because I have encountered a number of musicians who have the opposite path, where, you know, they devoted their 20s to music, and then in their 30s or later, they decided that they wanted to go back and do a PhD or do a medical degree. And I think it's a lot harder at that point, because they often have families and other obligations, and they can't really devote the same kind of time um, to you know, a PhD program or an MD program that you can when you're 20s and you generally have fewer responsibilities. Um, and so I see a lot of people who maybe do it for a year or two and then don't complete it. And I know that we now live in a culture where if you don't have that degree, there are a lot of doors that are closed to you, especially in academia. Um, and for better or for worse, I think to some extent there are some things that I learned doing my PhD, including finishing the thesis, um, that make me qualified to be a professor at a university. And if I hadn't gone through those experiences, I don't think I could be a successful professor. Um, On the other hand, it's just a degree. It's just letters behind your name. And I know a lot of people who are very, very knowledgeable, who have the knowledge of a university professor without the degree, um, but for whom those doors that are closed. So, I mean, I guess my answer is that this, this was my path. You know, I don't know, how much further along in my musical career I could have gotten earlier on had I done that first as opposed to the PhD. Um, But I am very happy to be where I am. And I think that the reason that I can have a unique contribution to this intersection of these fields is because I both have the depth of knowledge in neuroscience and I have the experience of working as a creative and I know how challenging it is and what you need to do in order to, you know, work on being successful at that. Um, So, uh, so I don't think that I could, you know, that I could have gotten to where I am without both of those tracks. I don't know that I could have gotten here in a more direct route because 10 years ago, you know, you didn't tell anybody that you studied the neuroscience of creativity. (laughs) If you told people that, you know, it was considered really fringe and not very scientific. uh, I mean, the society for the neuroscience of creativity is only maybe seven years old now. So it's a really new field. And um, it's only recently I think that people have started to see that you can bridge these two disciplines. You can actually um, learn from both of them. Uh, and it's not that they have to be separate the way they have been for so many decades.
0: Thanks, that's, that's a great segue to what I wanted to ask you next about creativity. And that's going to be the, one of the focuses of your, your dissertation, your, your, your uh, work with us at, at Um Again, in in terms of your own journey, were those disciplinary studies that you conducted helpful to developing creativity? Did did they um, help you get a a, a greater awareness of what it entailed? And how does that relate to what we could be doing at schools in in the K-12 sector?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think that there are a lot of misconceptions about exactly what creativity is. And that's where I think that the field of the neuroscience of creativity has made a lot of strides in recent decades and why it's important that we sort of um, talk about the different aspects of creativity and how it's not just one unitary thing. Um, because The scientific studies of creativity helped me at times, and then at other times I found them totally useless. (laughs) And and let me sort of explain how how that that works. So I like to think of creativity as having three ways of being defined. One is in terms of the creative product. So is duct taping a banana to the wall, an act of creativity or something else, vandalism? and the second is the creative person. So what are the traits of a person who tends to choose a creative profession or who tends to succeed in a creative domain? And then third, the elements of the creative process. And we know that the creative process actually um, has a number of different stages. And it's kind of it's more like um, like a cycle than a line, if you think about the stages, because they're, they're iterative. But essentially, I like to think of them as um, like a bit of a, a sandwich in terms of how the brain is involved. So the first stage or is sort of preparation where you really have to you know, get down, learn your domain, do a lot of very deliberative thinking about what it is that you're going to do, set your goals, et cetera. And the last stage is like verification or editing where you see whether the things that you came up with in the nebulous middle stage were actually good. And in both cases, you sort of need to have this deliberative, um, very conscious work that happens. And it can feel like work. It's effortful. But in the middle, we have what most people think of as the essence of creativity. And it's just one part of it, which is this illumination or incubation. This this kind of, you know, you take a walk and all of a sudden a great idea pops into your head or, you know, you're improvising um, uh, in a jazz band and, and all of a sudden you get going and you get into the zone or you get into flow. And it turns out that the more you try to do those things, the the more you fail at them. You actually have to let your mind wander. And and one of the things I'm excited to talk talk to you about when when I come to Buenos Aires is sort of what we know about the brain networks in these different stages and how we can shape um, the context in which a person is asked to be creative to feed into one or the other, because it turns out that the deliberative, more conscious aspects of creativity benefit from different kinds of conditions than the more incubative, illuminative uh, parts of creativity. Um, So now that we have these sort of three ways of thinking about creativity, in terms of my own um, trajectory, for a long time, I felt like the way i was creative in music was very different from the way i did my work as a scientist and even though my work as a scientist was creative it still felt like work it was very much in the deliberative uh, much more so than say getting up and singing an aria which felt much more like it's coming from nowhere and so reading studies about you know how to sing learning all the different you know, frequencies of your, and how to, you know, lift your soft palate and move your larynx and all these other kind of anatomical things about the voice, got in the way of my being able to just sing beautifully and just express what was in my soul. Um, Because it put me more into that deliberative conscious thinking part, when I really needed to be in the more incubative, illuminative part. And so I had to, so, so for a long time, I just didn't even look at those kinds of studies. And it isn't until recently when I started to see that the science of creativity, what it can do is it can inform how I organize my time, how I set up my practice schedule, what and how I practice when, and Um, When I'm working as a director, how I work with the people that I'm working with, whether it's the design team or the singers or, or, you know, some other staff member, that's where the science of creativity can come in because it can tell me what works and what doesn't work. But when you're actually doing the work, overthinking it and being too sort of tied to either results or a particular method comes in the way of being creative. So that's sort of a long way of saying that, you know, I think that there are, we, we have to be more sophisticated when we think about creativity, it's not just one thing. And there are many ways in which we can um, work to create a context in which kids can be their most creative selves. Um, but it's, it's a nuanced thing as opposed to just saying, look, all you have to do is, you know, put them in a classroom with lots of natural light and play music and they'll be creative. And we know that doesn't work. <laughs> It'll work yeah. for one kid, it won't work for another. Um, and so now we know much more about about why.
0: Um, in terms of the, the learning process in and, and education, um when you were mentioning kind of the, the the technique, the the actual cognitive process of acquiring skills and content that will let you create content that is not just basic as, mm-hmm. as a and and the creative process itself, they're not mutually exclusive.
1: Mm-hmm. That's right. And yes, and,
0: um, I once read from Stephen Nachmanovich, uh, which I'm, who I'm sure you know, uh, the art of is uh, a musician about improvisation being not not being unprepared, but rather preparing yourself your whole life for 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 being creative in in the process. How could you now that you're also a parent and you're going through school in a different context? How do you see that in schools? And how could how can schools truly foster creativity at more than paying lip, lip service to that?
1: Yeah. So I think the most important thing is to um, engender a love of learning and a respect for effort. Um, So, you know, you're probably familiar with this idea of growth versus fixed mindset, you know, kids who have beliefs about, but this also applies to creativity. Um, In fact, it applies very much to when a person is being asked to be creative. One of the things we study in my lab is anxiety specific to being asked to be creative. We call it creativity anxiety. Um, And it turns out that a lot of kids develop, they, they get anxious when you say to them, be creative. But if you say to them, huh, you know, I have this problem. Can you help me find a solution? They don't get anxious and they help you find all kinds of different solutions. There's something that we've sort of said, we've sometimes somehow put creativity on this pedestal and the kids even see that. That if it hasn't like come quote unquote naturally, if it doesn't come effortlessly, I mean we we so often um, uh, reward prodigies, you know, kids who seem to just pick something up without trying. And in the way in which we kind of reward that, what we're saying to the kid who's struggling is, "You're not as talented. You're not as creative." So you know, struggle is something that you know tells you you shouldn't continue to do that thing. So for me, but but that's, you know, it turns out that most of these prodigies actually don't end up being eminent creatives. They end up being more imitative and they don't actually, I mean, they they, they don't succeed the way a, a, a child who has had to try really hard and who has learned with a growth mindset that effort is the path to mastery, not something that they should be ashamed of because it suggests they're not talented. Um, and and so so I would say that, you know, That's something that is especially true when you're developing a skill that you're going to be using in a creative domain, is to ensure that um, the child is finding the joy in the process, in um, being rewarded for the way that they are trying, not simply for getting to the end goal the fastest or the quickest.
0: Unfortunately, that is uh, far from reality in schools. We still operate in a mode that rewards results uh, over yep. anything else, and mm-hmm. schools build their self-esteem more on exam results and uh, mm-hmm. achievement rather than 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 the process. Um, what can we do? What, what can teachers do? I mean, every every teacher faces constraints. We, you know, every school has its own set of limitations and cultural norms, et cetera. But Within the scope of what is doable, what would you suggest for for teachers in the classroom to do to to kind of uh, encourage their students to go through the process, to not reward results, et cetera?
1: I mean, I think it's really important to highlight improvement. And I will say that one of the most formative things in my education was when I was in first or second grade. And at the end of the school year, I won a medal. (laughs) for most improved student. And it was because when I started out, I got a D in spelling and at the very end I got an A and that was incredibly formative for me to get up there and get a medal for improvement um, amongst all these other students who were getting it for, you know, all these other achievement things meant the whole world. Um, And I, I think that, that that's what we can do as educators is we can, Um, find ways in which even, even the top student that comes in has room for improvement. (laughs) And instead of saying, you know, wow, you know, you've, you've written, you've written the top essay, or you've, you know, finished the the, the math programs, the uh, the fastest, if you can say, okay, now let's see how much better you can be in, you know, how much you can improve over this time. And, you know, basically tracking difference scores, rather than one score, I think, you know, that could be really effective in terms of, you know, showing the kids you've gone from here to here, not just you're here now, um, I think is, 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 is making sure that they see that they have done the improvement. Because a lot of kids have a very short memory. They don't remember, like my son, who's in, you know, just finished second grade, he can read now he doesn't remember a year ago that he was literally in tears because he couldn't read. And it was seemed impossible to him. This idea of like, you know, taking this set of symbols and making sense of, the, of them seemed to him impossible. And now it's impossible for him not to read. And so I think it's just important to sort of highlight that, illustrate that. Look, you, it used to be that, you know, maybe even take some of their work from a previous grade and show them how last year you could barely write this and now it's like you've done this whole improvement and the reason is is that because you've worked on it you know through the course of this year
0: something you said before I I, never thought of it never read it um when when you said that some of the most you know proficient kids in school were actually emulators and then they didn't do so well uh, when they had to be on their own and I really struck home when, when you said that um so the whole concept of gifted children and children who do well in schools, mostly because they are uh, quite adept at, at following the norms and becoming professionals of learning, etc. What can you say to uh, the approach we need to have an education for the kids who have it easy at school? What's, what's best for them in terms of developing pathways that, that help them grow?
1: Well, you know, I think that even those kids who tend to have it easy, there are things that they are passionate about that they're not good at yet Um, because I was one of those kids. You know, it was easy for me to study. I had a, a photographic memory. You put a biology text in front of me and then you ask me to write the test. And I literally would just in my mind's eye project the page and write down the answer. Easy peasy. But there were so many other things that I wanted to do that I just wasn't good at. Um, including some aspects of reading music, for example. And I just felt like because it's not as easy as my biology textbook, I'm not talented in this and I'm never going to be talented in this. And so I didn't try as hard. I didn't work on it. It was hard. I didn't know what to do. And I never really got better at it until I finally went to music school and I had to take remedial music theory. Mm. <laughs> um, and eventually I, I figured it out, but it it it, 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 had, it had to, I had to completely change my mindset and I had to completely... Uh, start to learn that you know what the thing that I'm not good at is the thing I should be spending time on Um, with a lot of our gifted kids we have them do the things that they are already good at as opposed to focusing on the things that they're not good at um, that are difficult for them and I think the same applies you know and I and I I think a lot of, I mean, I actually see the world as um, just kind of a a spectrum of all kinds of neurodiversity and the gifted kids being, you know, also, you know, having some strengths and some weaknesses. It's very rare that you can find a child who has no weaknesses. Um, And yet we play to their strengths. We don't address those weaknesses in the same supportive, unconditional way that we reward those strengths.
0: Um. Finally, our final topic. Uh, I I recommend to all our audience to um, download or or access from the great courses how digital technology shapes our our brain. Um, fascinating course, and there's a you know breadth of subjects there. But um, as you as you're very aware, technology is both uh, you know uh, an enabler and the demon in education, and it's equally hailed as the, the next best thing for for a better future as it is vilified for its negative effects. Um, and again, I encourage everybody to, to access the course, but what what can you tell us about digital technology and how that has an impact or not in, in kids and their development?
1: Yeah, I mean as you say it's a, it's a 24 lecture course where it's yeah. over 100,000 words that I wrote. So it's you know and and I, and and I think it has to be that way because of course it's very nuanced and there are lots of complexities and there are lots of of things. But if I had to distill it down into a sort of one big idea, I would say that one of the things that um, digital technology does is it opens up opportunities and it opens up possibilities. um, And it allows uh, us to have a lot of access to things that we normally wouldn't have access. And by the same token, it can be damaging just like eating too much Halloween candy gives you a bit of pleasure, but it doesn't fill you up. It doesn't give you that nutrition. It doesn't build the mind uh, the way that other forms of education do. So we have to make sure that in the course of a child's education, we're not just snacking on digital technology bits that are rewarding in the moment that can keep our attention, that are are fun for for, um, a short period of time. And we're still allowing room for the main meal, um, which is often in the, in the form of sort of a deep dive into um, a particular mental framework. So one example that I like to give uh, is reading fiction. So one of the reasons that fiction is so wonderful and why reading fiction is so much more effective than say watching a, a movie based on a book is because when you're reading fiction, your mind has to do a lot of work in, in terms of building that imaginary world. You have to imagine what the character looks like. You have to imagine the context. And the author, of course, can help. And some authors you know, are more uh, specific in terms of helping you build that imaginary world than others, but I, that's why I think it's important to read a variety of authors. But in this process, children learn to use their imagination to develop skills like empathy, to be able to shift in perspective taking, to understand that someone else might have a different point of view um, because in the course of the fiction, they will be asked to go into the minds of different characters or a third person narrator or etc. So it gives them the mental flexibility of creating a, a fuller virtual world in their heads. That isn't to say then that it isn't fun to incorporate some multisensory thing in the course of talking about the book. So let's say, you know, you're reading something like Harry Potter. Um, There's nothing wrong with after having read the book, showing them the film so that and then talking about, well, how did this match up with what you imagined? Did Harry look this way in your imagination? Did the school look this way? What's different and why, et cetera? And so I think that we can use technology to help maintain attention, to you know, open up accessibility, all of these great things, but we have to remember to give them the main meal, um, which is the ability to build have deep uh, engagement,
0: I lost you. I lost you at the end.
1: Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. So so the, the last thing I was gonna say is that is that digital tools don't have the same ability to help you build that kind of an inner mental model as the physical book
0: final question um, you you're dedicating your your life and your your professional endeavors to many of the topics that are not covered in in k-12 education and even I would say in, in you know in universities um, we are working we're doing everything we can to, to try to you know bring a new newfound sense of awareness about what really matters in, in education how uh, as you said growth mindset how we should take care of our children's self-esteem, um, how schools should not be a, a frustrating experience and such. How do you see it from, from your point of view and, and having done so much work in, in areas that, that should be more prominent in education? How do you see it and how do you see the future of learning and, and the future of schools?
1: So it's it's hard to it's 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 one thing to see to have a vision of what i think it should be like and another to be grounded in the reality of you know where we're headed and where we're going but i am very much encouraged that in the last 5 years there has been much more of an appreciation of the role that the arts have on our health and well-being and just generally in terms of how they can improve our lives and i think we are g- g- coming away from this idea that the arts are you know, something that you include once everything else is paid for and, you know, s- situated um, and that instead we can use the arts to um, imp- to, to sort of get Im- improve the core curriculum. Um, I wrote a white paper a couple of years ago called Music for Every Child. And it essentially, you know, over the course of 30 or 40 pages, documented all the science behind what music education does to brain development and social development, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But the most important point that I used at the very end of the paper was an economic argument, which is that if you have a music program in your school, you have generally higher attendance rates. If the kids are coming to school because they have band practice, they're going to stay for math. (laughs) They're going to stay for reading and writing. But if they don't come to school at all, you can't teach them those things. And the arts have the power to bring kids to school. The arts have the power of bringing a lot of, you know, communities and and so so do athletics. Um, But, you know, I think that it's you can't have one without the other necessarily. I mean, even a lot of athletics benefit from having a band. Um, so I think that we're starting to see, not that you know, having a music program comes at the cost of you know, developing the core curriculum or getting those great scores on the standardized test, but rather enhances that those results. Like having a music program will increase, will improve your standardized test scores for your school. So it is a good investment from an economic perspective as the evidence becomes more um, available is the you know you you have to continue to evaluate that and the music program itself has to grow and evolve to serve the community. Um, It doesn't make sense to you know bring a whole bunch of music that the kids have no concept or relationship with and that it becomes a chore for them to practice, then you're not doing what, you, what, what music really can do, um, which is, which is bring, bring people to go. So that's just one example, but I think that what I'm, what I'm seeing too, I mean, certainly in the US, the standardized test score thing is a failed experiment. I mean, we're seeing that, we're seeing a lot of money being shunted away from public schools and towards private schools and or charter schools, because we see that this kind of you know educational model where you're just teaching to the test is not effective. Um, so I think in the future, as we learn more about uh, creativity and, and how to engender it, how important it is in uh, in our workforce, and, you know, the role that the arts can play in terms of bringing kids to school, keeping them engaged and fostering their creativity, um, I think we are going to have a better experience all around. And I think we are going to go away from this model of teaching to the test, at least I hope so.
0: Thank you very much. We, we very much look forward to hosting you here in Argentina in, in September and, and, and going deeper into some of these topics. Thanks a lot.
1: Great. Oh, it's my pleasure. I can't wait.
0: Thanks for joining us. Let's imagine for a second what schools would be like if we could actually learn about creativity, neuroscience, and many of the other topics that are only included, if at all, in schools almost as an afterthought. And why can't we learn about these topics? One of the most common mistakes we make is that we take for granted that some of the traditional subjects are mutually exclusive with deeper learning, that change is impossible, and mostly because of a type of paradigm that in education change is all or nothing and and as we know sadly in education all or nothing is always nothing our challenge is perhaps not to totally overhaul what we do which is unrealistic but rather to find the spaces the critical points that exist in every school context to learn and do differently we can learn about neuroscience creativity technology and the brain we just need to find the right space the right time and the right moment. you can find this all past and future episodes at conversations.thelearnerspace.org once again that is conversations.thelearnerspace.org thanks and until the next one